Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. If, if this is your first time here at Central, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Central. Well, if you are new to Central, this is your first time joining us all summer long from Memorial Day to Labor Day. We are journeying through the Gospel of John. We're calling it Discovering Jesus. And at the beginning of the summer, we passed out these little journals. It's just the NIV translation of the Gospel of John. On one page is the text. On the other page, there's just lines so you can journal and write things down. Uh, but all summer, we've been taking time to, to walk through this book and discover who Jesus is. And there's kind of this weird dance we have with, with, with fitting in and belonging, but also trying to be our own unique selves. Some of you probably know Bob Goff, who's a speaker and writer, and I, I love this quote that he has. He says, hey, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. And I think, that's a good, I think that's good advice. I think there's beauty that God has gifted each one of us individually with these unique gifts and talents and, and things that we should live into. But I think also at times, this, this pursuit of uniqueness can almost become an idol. We live in this culture of radical individuality, of I'm my own person, I don't need any help, I can do it on my own. And yes, there is beauty in uniqueness, but sometimes that pursuit of uniqueness can just become another way of trying to fit in. But then when I think about that in terms of faith, when I think about that uniqueness or that otherness, that distinctiveness in terms of faith, See, we, we know that, that faith isn't just about what happens to us after we die, right? That's why we believe that God's kingdom and faith is about God's kingdom breaking in here and now, which is why we pray all the time for God's kingdom to come in flint as it is in heaven. And we also know that God's kingdom is so vastly different from any other kingdom or empire or nation in this world. And so in comparison... In comparison to these other kingdoms, these other nations, the other worlds, God's kingdom should have a uniqueness to it, an otherness, a distinctiveness to it. And, and so I think one of the essential questions for Christians to ask is how is my life reflecting this uniqueness of God's kingdom? Because if I can be honest, one of my concerns, one of my concerns for the church is that in this pursuit to try to fit in, to try to have a place, to try to, to, try to, to, try to have a voice in, in culture and society, that we've sometimes lost some of that distinctiveness. That in that pursuit to, 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 to have a place, we've kind of lost some of those things that make God's kingdom unique and distinct and otherly. And so what are we left to do with that? See, today we're going to be in a chap chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. I think this chapter can help us as we wrestle with that a little bit today. Because that question of uniqueness is really a two-part question. The first part is, well, what is that uniqueness of God's kingdom? What is it? Then the second question is, well, then how? How do we live lives that faithfully embody this kind of otherness, this kind of uniqueness? And in John chapter 14, we're going to spend time mostly in the second half of John 14. 
But leading up to this, the first half of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been going and doing all of these things. He's been performing these miracles and saying these things, making these claims. And a lot of them have not sit pretty very well with the religious leaders. And all of that kind of culminated in John chapter 11 a few weeks ago when Pastor Rob preached about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that, that miracle that Jesus performed was so profound and created such a buzz that the religious leaders determined that it was time to do something to take care of Jesus. And in John 11, verse 53, we see that the religious leaders, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And so Jesus knows that, that his time is drawing near. And the first half of John, the first uh, 12 chapters, cover months and years of Jesus' life and ministry. But then these next few chapters, chapters 13 to 17, kind of zoom in, hyper-focused as Jesus knows that these are his last moments, his last, his last hours with the disciples. And so he becomes hyper-focused and intentional on what he begins to tell them and what he begins to show them. And so here, he's, he's pulled them in. He's, he, he's drew them close. And it's kind of like he's given them the talk. How many of you know the talk from when you were growing up? You got the talk at some point. I see some smiles and some hands. The, the awkward, uncomfortable talk. I, my, fam, my, my dad didn't really have the talk. It was more of like the walk. Like if there's something serious or something uh, sensitive, we would, he would, okay, let's go for a walk. Which as I think about it more, I think I prefer the walk than the talk because when you're in the talk, sometimes the talk can happen like in a place where you can't get out, like a car, and you're kind of just stuck no matter how awkward the talk gets. You high school students, you're laughing. You know what I'm talking about. See, with the walk, if it got too uncomfortable, I'd just take off and I'd be done with it. But here, Jesus is gathering, and not, not for that talk, but for, for this talk. The last moments that Jesus will have with his disciples before he's crucified. And, and most of John has been focused on Jesus, which doesn't sound that bizarre. It's like, oh, duh. Who is this Jesus? But here in the second half of John 14, Jesus kind of shifts the focus. And he diverts the focus into what, what life will be like after Jesus is gone. Because he's alluded to this before, and the disciples, they get kind of nervous about this. When Jesus talks about after he's gone, and the disciples don't know, okay, well, how are we going to do it? What are we going to do? How are we going to continue on this thing that you've started, Jesus? And that's where we jump in. John 14, we're going to start at verse 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And it seems pretty straightforward. It's like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit. That, I mean, that, that's, that's the plan, right? But if I were to ask you to talk about the Holy Spirit to me, if I were to ask you how to, ex to explain the Holy Spirit to me, how would you do that? Would you be able to do that? It's like, oh yeah, well yeah, the Holy Spirit is... Um, uh, it's part of the Trinity, okay? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit kind of, uh, the Holy Spirit, see, I think in a lot of ways, we have kind of an underdeveloped theology of the Holy Spirit. We spend a lot of time talking about, about God. We spend a lot of time talking about Jesus, and, and for good reason, we should do that. But sometimes it's like we forget to talk about the Holy Spirit and the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
See, whenever we read the Holy Spirit in Scripture, or God's Spirit, or good Spirit, or the Spirit of truth, or, or any number of phrases we see in reference to the Holy Spirit, here's where our minds should go. That that Spirit is God's personal presence. That Spirit is God's personal presence. The Spirit doesn't just represent God's personal presence, like, like a placeholder. The Spirit literally is God's personal presence. And so time and time again, in the Old Testament, when you read about the Spirit, we see that the Spirit is showing up and moving in, in, in these encounters and these moments with these people, and that, that's God's personal presence in that moment. We see that again in the New Testament. Anytime we read about the Spirit, we are reading about God's personal presence. So if that is what or who the Holy Spirit is, then what does the Holy Spirit do? And Jesus gets into that a little bit more in, in verse 16. He says, And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Jesus says he'll give you another advocate. He's saying, me, I, I've been an advocate, and this, this spirit will be another advocate. I love that word advocate. It's this Greek word, paraclete. Paraclete. And we actually only find it here in John's gospel. It's not anywhere else in scripture, but in these chapters in John's gospel. And the word paraclete, if you look at different translations, you'll see all sorts of different translations for this word advocate. You'll see advocate, and you'll see comforter, you'll see helper. Sometimes you see witness, or revealer, or teacher, or reminder. It's kind of like, for John, couldn't really nail down what the Holy Spirit is, and so let's use this word paraclete, which kind of encompasses all of those things. The Holy Spirit isn't just one thing. It's all of these. It, it, it's, it's advocate and comforter and helper and witness and revealer and teacher and reminder that the paraclete, God's personal presence, and here Jesus says, will help you, will be sent to help you and be with you forever. God's personal presence will help you and be with you forever. Jesus uh, develops this thought a little bit more if we jump ahead to verse 26. Jesus says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This advocate, this paraclete, will teach you all things and remind you of all things. Now, the phrasing Jesus uses here, he's not speaking literally. Like, you'll, you'll never forget anything Jesus has ever said. You'll know every, every bit of Jesus' teaching. But what Jesus is saying here is this paraclete, this advocate, will help you to live more and more and more like Jesus. That this advocate, this paraclete, can help you to look more and more and more like Jesus. And then he says this in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Just as Jesus has been talking about him leaving and sending the Spirit, now he says when he leaves, he will leave his peace. And it's like this connection between God's Spirit and peace. When the disciples would have heard this word, they lived in the Roman Empire, the biggest superpower of the day. 
And with the Roman Empire came all sorts of different things, and one of those things was this idea of of Roman peace, or in Greek, Pax Romana. See, the Roman Empire was so big and so vast that they said, hey, if you give us your allegiance, if if you become a Roman citizen, there's going to be some privileges to that. We're going to take care of you. There's special things that only Roman citizens can do. We'll give you certain protection and certain safety that only Roman citizens can get, and we'll call it peace. But what Jesus seems to be playing with here is to kind of subvert that and say that this this peace that comes from Rome is kind of this fake peace under the guise of imperialism and the threat of violence. Hey, we'll take care of you as long as Hey, we've got you so long as you're one of us. And what Jesus begins to talk about here, the things that Jesus is is kind of drawing out, is that Jesus' followers, people of Jesus, are going to be marked by this peace, this otherness, this uniqueness that's not of this world, that doesn't make sense to those who may be looking in. The language Jesus would have used here as he talked about peace to the disciples and to the first hearers would have sounded like this radical, revolutionary kind of language. But Jesus is saying this life, this life being led by the Spirit, this uniqueness that comes from the Spirit is the identity and posture and orientation of Jesus' people. Last week, Pastor Rob preached on John 13. And he talked about this moment where Jesus gathers the disciples, this, this same moment, and he begins to wash their feet. And Rob talked about how that's, that's the essence of God's kingdom. What Jesus demonstrates there, this act of self-giving love, this self-emptying love, is the essence of God's kingdom. See, that is the what part of that question. What is this uniqueness? It's this self-giving, this self-emptying love. But here in John 14, we see the how. God's spirit, the paraclete, the advocate. That life of self-emptying, self-giving love is only made possible by this deep connection with God's spirit. We need God's spirit, the spirit that engages us in God's mission. The spirit that empowers us towards Christ-likeness and the spirit that emboldens us to embody this kind of uniqueness, this kind of otherness that compels the world to Christ. We need God's spirit to engage and empower and embolden our lives. So what does that mean for you and me? See, I kind of think it goes back to what I talked about earlier. My, My concern is that sometimes... Sometimes as Christians, we get so caught up in everything that's happening around us that our Christian story kind of just starts to look like a different version of the same story we see over and over and over in the world. And I wonder sometimes, would non-Christians look at us, do our lives, do the way that we live, does it actually look like good news? Does it look like something where non-Christians look and say, oh, whatever that is, I need that in my life. Whatever that is, I need it. Or do they look at us and say, yikes. And if that's the Jesus life, then, then count me out. We need God's spirit 
to come and empower us to live and to demonstrate this other way of being in the world, that this story is so different and so vastly different from all of the other stories that we need God's Spirit to help empower us to live faithfully into this story. I think we can be reminded of Paul's words here in Galatians. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That the fruit of the Spirit is not some need for instant gratification, but patience. The evidence of the Spirit is not some incessant need to be right, but gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is not a quick tongue, but self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is not, is not more chaos or violence or whatever we see. The evidence of the Spirit in our lives is peace. We need the Spirit to engage us, to empower us, and to embolden us to this kind of uniqueness, this kind of otherness that compels people to Christ. Lord, have mercy and Lord, help us. If you've heard me preach, you know that one of my heroes of faith, one of my heroes of faith is a guy named Greg Boyle. He's actually a Jesuit priest out in California. He's worked for for years and years working alongside gang members and ex-gang members in Los Angeles. And he's a hero of mine uh, because, because he lives this faith. He puts actions, he says, it's just so compelling and so inspiring to me. But he tells these stories about the, the privilege he's had of baptizing ex-gang members. He says there's always something profound about it. He, he said uh, there's one story one time uh, where there's this young kid who was an ex-gang member who wanted to be baptized. And so he told him, okay, when it comes to time, all you've got to do is I'm going to ask you your name and you tell me your name. And then I'll ask you, and what do you ask of God's church? And you're supposed to say, I want to be baptized. And so they got into this service, into this moment, and he could tell the kid was nervous. He was, you know, shaking, and then he was like looking around, and he could, he could just tell, this guy is nervous. And so they get into the moment, and he asks, hey, and what's your name? And he just shouts out his name. And Father Greg says, and, and what do you ask of God's church? And he said, I want to be a Baptist. <laughs> and Father Greg said, ah, oh, close enough, close enough. But he tells one story about, about an ex-gang member. He, calls, he says, refers to them as homies. This one homie named George. And he met George in this probation camp. And he said George came in as this rough exterior, I don't need anybody kind of guy. And over time, he said he saw how George's demeanor and posture and life began to change. It was like God's spirit softened him. To the point where he asked Father Greg, he said, would you baptize me? And George wanted to do it on a specific weekend because he was also graduating with his GED and he wanted to be baptized in the same weekend. He said it was a two for one. He was so excited to have Father Greg baptize him. Father Greg also knew George's older brother, Sisko. And on the night before his baptism, Sisko was walking home, and a car pulled up full of rival gang members. And they opened fire, and Sisko died right there on the street. George had no idea. Father Greg said, I knew. I didn't sleep that night knowing I was going to have to show up. 
And I was gonna baptize George and then I was gonna have to tell him that his brother had been killed. And so he showed up that day and George is grinning ear to ear. No idea what had happened the night before. And so they do the baptism service and, and Father Greg leads them outside. And as they're outside, they get onto a bench and he's got his arm around him and he tells him, George, last night your brother was killed. He said he could feel the air leave his body that turned to sobs. And Father Greg said, I sat there and I waited. Because I know how this story goes for the homies. Whenever another gang does something, hurts someone, kills someone in your gang, you have to respond. You respond with anger and rage and calls for vengeance and getting even. He said, so I sat there and waited for that to come from George. He said, as I sat there, that never came. That call for vengeance, that anger, that rage never came. It was life like George's life had been transformed and there was this new uniqueness, this otherness to his life. All of George's life, he had been told, this is how the story goes. If this happens, this is how we respond. And yet after encountering God's spirit, God's personal presence, there was none of that response. I think we can learn something from George. In a world that operates a certain way, what would it look like for us as Christians, empowered by God's Spirit, to embody this kind of otherness to the world around us? Let me just say that this otherness, this uniqueness, isn't just for our own sake. It's not so we can stand back and say, well, look at us. Look how unique we are. Thank goodness we're not like them. No, this, this gift of the Spirit, God's personal presence to, to engage us and empower us and embolden us so that we can faithfully live out what Jesus started this, these verses with. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And if we flip back just a page to John 13, Jesus says this, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another the gift of God's spirit, God's personal presence in our lives that engages us and empowers us and emboldens us is so that we can love one another well. So that we can love one another and by doing that, we can love God. And in living in that kind of way, in that kind of posture, our lives can compel people to know Jesus in new and profound ways. Lord, help us do that today.